The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right, so now we'll be turning toward the final passages in chapter two, just finishing up that section. And these contain a number of important and quite profound points. So I want to pick up right where Yang left off, again in section 223, where here we have um, a situation where the Buddha and Ananda have some different ideas about how the Buddha is going to depart from the Sangha, from his group of followers. Um, so the Buddha says, it is not fitting that I should attain final Nibbana without addressing my followers and taking leave of the order of monks. So that's his thought about this situation. But in the next paragraph in 2.24, Ananda says, the Lord will not attain final Nibbana until he has made some statement about the order of monks. So these are different. You can see the difference between these. Um, Ananda is wanting the leader to make some kind of a declaration about how his followers will go on. Maybe he's going to say who his successor is. Maybe he's going to say how we should do things from now on. Maybe he should, you know, he should make it all clear for us so we can go on. Um, but the Buddhist thoughts are a lot simpler than that. They're, they're more along the lines of it would be impolite if I didn't take leave somehow of the, the people that um, I've been associating with for so long. It's a different motivation going on there. And so um, when Ananda reveals that this is what he's expecting, essentially he's expecting this from the Buddha, he says, oh, I, I just, I felt so much better when I, I realized that you surely wouldn't leave without, you know, telling us all these important things that we need to know. And the Buddha realizes, oh, I better correct that. So he says um, in 2.25, what does the order of monks expect of me? I have taught the Dhamma, Ananda, making no inner and outer. The Tathagata has no teacher's fist in respect to doctrines. So what does this mean? This is a little bit unusual English um, for us. And the Pali is a little unusual too. But what it's understood to mean is that um, the Buddha doesn't have any special secret additional teachings that he needs to add. He hasn't held back on anything. The teacher's fist is kind of the holding back, the only revealing a little bit, teasing students along. And the Buddha uh, says, I haven't done that. I've, I've told you everything. <laughs> this is it. Um, there's nothing more to say. Um, and so we can see that this contrasts with the, um, the nature of the Brahmin's teachings at the time. So uh, the Brahmin's teachings uh, were very um, sort of elitist. They were passed down only in the Brahmin line, only from teacher to student in certain uh, sort of ways, whereas, um, you know, master to disciple, whereas the Buddha taught anyone who asked him, he taught all the, all the simple teachings and all the advanced teachings are kind of the same. Um, and so he's, you know, he's making this clear, 
essentially. And so maybe a little side note on that is you've probably heard all the teachings that you need to awaken at this point. <clears throat> I know we have to keep going over them together, but in some sense, if you've heard the four foundations of mindfulness and the four noble truths and the eightfold path, um, that's pretty much it. Uh, it just takes a while to unfold. This is the view in early Buddhism. Um, maybe somewhat coincidentally, this view contrasts a little bit with sometimes what's done in the later traditions of Buddhism, which have you know, uh, inner, outer, and secret teachings, for example. It's a little different conception of how to do it. So um, then the Buddha goes on to say, if there is anyone who thinks I shall take charge of the order or the order should refer to me, let him make some statement about the order. But the Tathagata does not think in such terms. So why should the Tathagata make a statement about the order? So he directly says to Ananda, I'm not going to do that. And it's um, essentially he's saying he's not going to name a successor. That's what it comes down to. And in this passage, that's the implication. So he doesn't even think in those terms. He's not thinking about that. We'll see later what he is thinking about. Um, so that's kind of interesting. This contrasts just incidentally with later strands of Buddhism where there is a successor named. Actually, the later strands of Buddhism say that Mahakasapa was named as the successor of the Buddha. Um, they directly state that, but that's not what's going on here. You might wonder, by the way, why not Sariputta or Moggallana? They were the two chief disciples of the Buddha. Most people are aware of that. You wouldn't know it from reading DN 16, but um, at this point, Sariputta and Moggallana are both dead. They'd both died before the Buddha. So um, they can't be his successor. Okay, so um, then we have quite a poignant section. He says, Ananda, I am now old, worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's path. I have reached the term of life, which is 80, just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps. So the Tathagata's body is kept going by being strapped up. It is only when the Tathagata withdraws his attention from outward signs and by the cessation of certain feelings enters into the signless concentration of mind that his body knows comfort. Wow. So maybe some of us have experienced um, bodily conditions where it felt like we were pretty much just strapped up. Um, so this is now more about aging than illness. Uh, that's what... Uh, Ying talked more about this case where he got sick for a little while, but now he says, you know, even now that he's over his illness, he can't change the fact that he's 80 years old. And uh, also, if you've, you know, worked with someone who is very elderly approaching death, it is like that, you know, the body can't hold itself together that well anymore. And you do one intervention and then that causes some other problem. And it's all, it feels like oh, at any moment, the balance could fail. And the, the Buddha is saying, it's like that for me now. Um, and nonetheless, though, he does have, this is a little foreshadowing of something we'll see later at his actual death. He does have the mental capacity to escape his suffering through concentration which is interesting. Um, and so he points out that when he enters the signless concentration of mind, which is a particular um, 
state where one wouldn't be affected by physical pain, that's the only time he can, his body is comfortable. And whenever he's in normal consciousness, it hurts. <laughs> uh, that's how it is as we get older. So how is it to read this? You know, the Buddha is an old man. Um, it's, he's not, in a physical sense, he's not great and mighty and powerful at all. His spiritual presence, presence definitely was still. There's evidence of that in the rest of the sutta. Um, but his body's strapped up like an old cart. Uh, so we can't really imagine the Buddha as a sort of a you know, transcendent cosmological being who's about to ascend into a glorious heaven through final Nibbana. Um, he's a dying old man, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, he's not suffering from his physical pain. So again, he's meeting one of these major heavenly messengers, these inevitabilities of human life uh, without any suffering. And he also doesn't have egoistic concerns about what's going to happen to the monastic order. You know, he did his part. He taught everything he could teach in his lifetime. And now it's going to be up to them. So what is his concern? He says, I don't think like this. How does he think? His concern is actually for the awakening of his followers, as it has been from the very beginning. So he goes on to say in section 226, another very famous statement. You should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. Wow. So again, there's this sense of, you know, this is, he's point, he's making a very direct pointing. So how can we understand this though? We have this self, um, the self as an island and the Dhamma as an island. Um, there is an explanation coming in a moment, but let's just hang with this for, for a second. First of all is this word um, island. That is a word, uh, the word is dipa, and it, sometimes it's translated as lamp. And the reason for that is that um, dipa can be related to two different Sanskrit words that have different pronunciations. And, but Pali has simpler pronunciation than Sanskrit. Some sounds drop out. And so both of these Sanskrit words for lamp and island, which are different, are, sound like dipa in Pali. And so there's a question then how to translate it. And maybe without going into a lot of detail here, I can say that um, both choices have been made throughout history, but uh, modern scholars are currently favoring island for various reasons, mostly related to uh, how the word deepa appears in other areas of the suttas, how it's used in other, other suttas. So this word um, self, let's look at that. The word is atta, actually, with the word that's negated in anatta. Um, so what is it, that, how can it be that the self is a, a refuge? I think I'm going to go for the simple explanation, which is that this is not necessarily referring to the cosmological atta that the Brahmins debated about philosophically and were trying to unify with Brahma and so forth. Uh, I think it's really more just the reflexive pronoun of oneself. So, you know, the, that, that word still exists as a normal everyday kind of word in Pali. And so he's saying, you know, you should trust your, your own heart. You have the teachings. Um, you, you can use the Dhamma. That's your other refuge. Um, and so we should, in a way, 
become personally responsible for our own paths. You know, the Buddha is not going to be there uh, to continue expounding the teachings. Of course, he has enlightened disciples who can do the same, and it's continued all the way to this day. Um, but nonetheless, there's, he's making a, an important statement that this is a self-empowering teaching, and there's a way in which, in fact, the first stage of awakening, one is said to become independent in the Dhamma, and so one becomes able to walk the path from one's own understanding and experience. Still, we still do it with others, of course, the Sangha. Um, so there's that. But we might even say a little bit more profoundly, maybe the self and the Dhamma converge. You know, there's a way, Sariputta makes a statement in another sutta that a person becomes the Eightfold Path through practice. It's not different from the very manifestation of a person's being. Because in the end, there, there isn't a self, right? And so not in the fundamental independent sense. And so just our whole energy, mind, body, way of being become the Dhamma. That's what the Buddha has become in a sense. So then, of course, he does um, then go on to give a little bit more concrete explanation. How does a monk live as an island unto himself with no, etc., with no other refuge? And he restates what the four foundations of mindfulness, the four establishments of mindfulness. So we abide contemplating the body as body, as feelings as feelings, putting away this one, it says hankering and fretting for the world. We also may hear you know, covetousness and despair, other sorts of things. So um, in the end, people who practice these four establishments of mindfulness will become, it says here, the highest. Um, so that means awakened. They will become awakened. So once again, we have the four establishments of mindfulness as the key practice. That's kind of our theme for today. It's been many times said in chapter two. And um, this will become our teacher. You know, these, these four foundations, so immediate, mind and body. This is where we can find freedom. It also explains something about why MN10 is so popular in our tradition. It's not just because it happens to be, you know, a teaching that's clear about what to do when we sit on the cushion, although it is that, but maybe it's because the Buddha pointed to it again and again, um, sort of elevated in this final, final sutta. So the Buddha is not dead yet, however. We've seen him encounter an illness and recover. We've seen him mention his inevitable aging, which is not getting any younger day by day. Um, but he's not dead yet. There's more to talk about, which will continue in our upcoming classes. Um, we'll see the continued unfolding of this story. So um, in our last you know, minutes together, uh, there will again be an opportunity now for any questions or comments, things that would help today be somewhat complete, um, and, and Ying will, will lead us in that. Yeah, I don't feel like I need to take any more time from you. Uh, if you'd like to ask any questions or share some comments based on what you've heard and learned up to this point. And so hopefully you will know what to do. Our reactions or participants at the bottom, raise your hand, are on mute. 
Okay, I see Nancy. Go ahead. Um, this is really just a um, reading the text. Um, I noticed that the words the Lord are, are used, and maybe you went over this in the first class, but I was really surprised to see that. And it has a Christian connotation to me. So I was just wondering if you had anything to say about that. Yeah, does any of my co-teachers wanted to say a few words on, on that? Maybe I'll just say a word. Yeah, this is our translator's choice. We're reading Maurice Walsh, the translator. Um, Bhagavan is the word. And Bhikabodhi, he translated as the blessed one. Um, there's some other people that translate it as the world-renowned one, or there's a, a number of different choices, and this is just the... Okay, I was familiar with the Blessed One, but I hadn't seen the Lord before. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, this yeah, I, yeah, I think Lord is very Western in its uh, expression, Lord uh, Buddha or something. I think in India, I've heard more... Just Buddha or Gautam Buddha? Gautam Buddha is very common in India. And I'm from India. Uh, so, yeah, no, Lord is not that co uh, common. I think it just shows respect. That's all it is trying to show. And it, they, I don't, I can see there is a westernization, but there's nothing wrong in it. You can show respect by saying Shri. You can say Lord, you can say anything, as long as your heart is in the right place. Thank you, Nandita. <laughs> Very well said. Um, I'll move on to Brian. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I, I had a question around um, the statement of mindful and clearly aware, which uh, comes back. And... Um, it struck me when I first read it that uh, I, m my understanding was that they were one in the same. I thought of mindfulness as awareness of, or the being clearly linked. And yet they, it's, it's being used again and again as separate words, mindfulness and clear awareness. And I'm wondering if someone, if one of the teachers can speak about the, is there a distinction here? And then if there is, what is that distinction or how does that, how is that important in this practice? Any of you? I see David is about to say something. Go for it. I'm, I'm smiling because a lot of ink has been spilled on these, these words oh. and their distinctions. And I'll let my colleagues maybe address that. But the thing that always raises a smile for me here is that I think, um, I think, when we read this list of things that uh, as we develop our practice, there's an expectation that we bring mindful attention to. We're supposed to do it when walking, sitting, pooping, peeing, eating, talking. We're supposed to do it in four postures, sitting, walking, lying down, and uh, standing. And the implication is, if you think about it, you might ask yourself the question, okay, well, so when is it okay to not practice mindfulness? There isn't any. So I think... I think to me, that's like the import of these passages is um, just that reminder that um, bringing mindful, clear attention to everything we engage in is really the, you know, the important um, aspect of these passages. But on the, on the words, yeah, Diana, Kim, Ying. 
Well, the word is um, sampajanya, uh, so sati sampajanya, um, and this this other word, um, it does have some technical definitions that are given mostly in the later teachings, as commentarial teachings. So there's like four different areas that we should have clear comprehension. Um, and they, they sort of just refine, uh, you know, being aware of the present moment. So you should be aware of your purpose and you should be aware of the domain that you're practicing in, which is the four foundations of mindfulness, by the way, and, you know, and, and other such things. So it's, um, I see it as a, a kind of a additional instructions. If you're starting to feel like maybe you're getting bored with basic mindfulness, this is now my view. <laughs> um, but it's a, yeah, it's just a sort of a refinement and there isn't a serious difference between them. Maybe others have other comments. I'll just add this though. Not all translators would translate Sampajanya. That's what, what is he using? Clear awareness. They would say like that comprehension, clear comprehension is. Kim was pointing out, so maybe that helps a little bit. Sorry, uh, can somebody see that word again? Sampajanya, what did you say? Yeah, Sampajanya, maybe one of uh, you can type it in in the chat box. How do you spell that? Yeah, so we'll um, send this in the chat box. I don't know how to put diacritical marks in the chat box. Does any, do you know how to do that, Kim? You can't put them in directly, but if you write it in Word, you can cut and paste it in there. John put it in. All right. Uh, John actually sent. Thank you. Sampajanya. Thank you. Yeah. Is that the Pali word? That's the Pali term for clearly aware uh, in our sutta. And then uh, sati is the mindfulness. Those are the two words that we've been talking about. What, what will be the Sanskrit word for Sampajanya? Uh, we'll just say janya is related to knowing. Pajanya is like clearly knowing. And sum means like together. So, oh, there we go. There's the sense. <laughs> yeah. May I ask a quick, may I ask a, just a, a follow-up question just briefly? Yeah, sure. yeah. So would it, would it be fair to say for, um, for me in my practice, uh, that if that it's fine not to, I don't have to parse these words. If the idea of just focusing on, yeah, <laughs> mindfulness, I will be fine. Great. That was Thank where you. my response was meant to go. Is yes, yes, yes. Directing yes. attention to where we bring that mindfulness and, and you know full full yeah. attention is beautiful. I think um, just like uh, us, you know, sometimes when we hear the same word again and again and again. We sometimes don't see some different perspectives of it. And so the Buddha was using different words, really pointing to um, this uh, practice that we're engaging in. So I'm going to just take the last two questions here, and then we'll uh, end today. Uh, Kevin. Um, thank you very much. So this is another kind of follow-up on the, on the guided meditation from David of my understanding um, after doing um, a couple of uh, uh, intensive recently with uh, Bhikkhu Analyo practicing Satipatthana is that mindfulness of feeling um, is presented a bit differently in the sense that uh, the feeling tone is inherent in each moment of experience, um, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And um, that then the task becomes to 
um, develop non-reactivity in response to it, to not respond to the pleasant, the pleasant unpleasant, and neutral with um, craving, ignoring, um, or pushing away. So that's quite different than the way you presented it during the guided meditation. Yeah, and I wish we had more time to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's a very, uh, I, for one thing, I would say there's no, I don't think there's any significant light between uh, Analia's way of holding this and my own sort of use of it in practice. But um, I think this is maybe the possibly the earliest and most subtle place that mind enters uh, our experience of things after we have contact with um, something, something perceived. And uh, the, the idea that it's not inherent in the uh, in experience itself is, can be kind of easily uh, illustrated by stroking your hand, which at first can be neutral, same touch. This is particularly true if somebody else is doing it and then can become pleasant frequently and then can become unpleasant. So it's not the experience that has those qualities in it itself. And the more we, um, I think the deeper practice goes, the more we start to understand the gross and subtle ways that mind adds things to experience. Most importantly, suffering and its, and its cessation. So I'm gonna sign off with that now, but this is a long conversation that we could, uh, that would be really uh, interesting to explore at greater length. Appreciate the question. So I think we have to end, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so I'll pass it back to uh, Diana who will wrap up uh, today's session. So thank you all, thank you all. This was uh, wonderful to practice together and explore and study together. So on Thursday, day after tomorrow, we'll be talking about the Buddha's death his actual death and you know what leads up to it and what surrounds it and of course we have one more class after that so there's uh, more but so just an encouragement to uh, look at those uh, the sutta if you want to focus on those that are, are surrounding his death chapters four and part of five and I, I appreciate very much that in the beginning of the class Chris talked about how um, sometimes some insight into ancient India sometimes helps us to understand some of these teachings. And there are so many different things here in this, um, in this sutta and these teachings. And allow yourself to feel the richness of it, as opposed to this idea of like, okay, I got to read this and figure it out. Allow yourself to imagine what would it have been like to be there? What would it have been like to experience this or to know this is happening? So just an invitation to really engage with the teachings. And we'll see you in two days. So with a really deep bow. And if you'd like to unmute yourself, we could say goodbye in an unruly, disorganized way. Mm -hmm. Bye and thank you. Bye everybody. Bye bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.